Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Brandon K. Winford, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Dr. Winford is on the podcast to discuss his new book, John Hervey Wheeler, Black Banking and the Economic Struggle for Civil Rights, published by the University Press of Kentucky. Dr. Winford is a historian of the late 19th and 20th century United States and African-American history with areas of specialization in civil rights and black business history. Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies, Dr. Winford. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, man, of of course. And it's it's a pleasure, right? You know, HBCU to HBCU, NCCU to FAMU, you see what it is, Durham to Tallahassee and beyond, right? We out here, we out here, as they say. Um, you know, hey, hey, you know, you know, we right we we striking out here, these rattlers, you know what I'm saying? HBCU pride up in this thing. <laughs> and so, um Yeah, no, nah, no, nah, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. Um and so, you know, Dr. Winford, thank you for coming on the podcast. And, you know, it's a pleasure to have you because your book, you know, it, it's, you know, it's coming at an interesting moment, right? We got The Last Dance. So, you know, East, Eastern uh, North Carolina, you know, and North Carolina generally, you know, it's a hot topic right now in these streets. Right, right. Definitely a hot topic. Uh, I've been uh, I've been watching the, the documentary and, and really fascinated about uh the, the 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 Eastern Carolina dynamic, looking at Jordan going to Chapel Hill and getting a sense of of his upbringing and and understand that he he had some some uh, grounding right in understanding of the social political economic dynamics uh, taking place in North Carolina uh, during this particular time. So uh, I, I've been coming away with a different kind of uh, assessment of 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 him, particularly in his college years, going to Chapel Hill and then his first few years uh, in the league, right? So it's been real interesting. Exactly. And and also, right, you know, Jordan, you know, he he is uh, the owner of the, the Charlotte Hornets too, right? So the North Carolina, and this is, you know, this is very much an interesting time to be doing black business history. Um, you know, and it segues into my question for you. So how, how did your interest in this project begin? So, uh, the grad student at North Carolina Central University was working on a master's program. Uh, went to undergraduate uh, at North Carolina Central University as well. Didn't know a lot about sort of the local history of Durham. Uh, taking courses on North Carolina history, but didn't really know that much. And uh, in my MA program, I was looking for topics, and I came across this organization called the Durham Committee on Negro Affairs, which was basically a civil rights organization in Durham one of the most powerful black political civil rights organizations in North Carolina, uh, even uh, it's still in operation today. So it still has some impact today. Uh, and I started to do a, a work on that project and decided to do an MA thesis on the Durham committee. Well, John Wheeler was uh, the chairman of that organization from about 1957 to 1978. And obviously if you're doing a project on the Durham committee, you got to run into John Wheeler and, uh, in understanding the history of that organization and his influence, he really, and, and began to sort of learn a little bit more about him, he really struck me as a really fascinating individual, someone who had his hands in everything related to African-American business, 
uh, higher education for African-Americans throughout the South. Uh, all things uh, when it came to black life in North Carolina and the region, he was involved with, with in some way, fast, uh, some way, shape or form. And uh, at the time, working on his master's thesis, I had about two paragraphs on John Wheeler, just really background paragraphs. So I started to tell people that actually the book on John Wheeler is actually a revision of those two paragraphs. Uh, and so working on the Durham Committee is really where I um, was introduced to John Herbert Wheeler. Very, very interesting story. And uh, to continue on that thread, um, you, you inform readers that you are the first scholar to be granted unrestricted access to, uh, you know, the Wheeler Connection or a collection rather. Um, so can you tell us more about the collection that you access? And also, man, like, how does that happen? Right, right. How, you know, how does that process actually happen, you know, for you to be the first scholar to be granted this particular unrestricted access? All right. So a really, really good question. So I was granted unrestricted access, one of the first scholars, but I didn't I wasn't granted exclusive access. So once uh, they started uh, letting me look at the material, it was open for everybody. Uh, but as I was working on my uh, master's thesis, uh, I got a and, and really sort of began to think about uh, going beyond the master's uh, uh, program and thinking about a Ph.D. program and doing my research on the Durham Committee. You know, I always said to myself, if I got an opportunity to work on a, a a broader project on John Wheeler, it will be an interesting project. Well, I got a tip from uh, North Carolina Central University's, uh, the university archivist, a guy by the name of Andre Van, and he told me about a collection of papers uh, that Wheeler's uh, widow, Selena Warren Wheeler, who I write about a little bit in the book, donated to uh, the uh, Atlanta University Center Robert W. W. Woodruff Library in 1979. And uh, so I took this tip and I got on a phone or probably emailed the archivist at Morehouse College. He said they were at Morehouse College where John Wheeler went to school, was on the board of trustees at. And come to find out, they were not actually at Morehouse College, but they were at the AUC, which is, uh, for those listening, is a consortium library where the historical black colleges there share that library, even though they all have their own separate archives. And I talked to the head archivist, uh, a woman named Karen Jefferson, and she wasn't aware of the collection. Uh, and so uh, I thought it was a dead end, but she did a little bit of digging and come to find out uh, not only was there a collection, but there was a it was a huge collection about um, ultimately about 109 linear feet of archival material. Uh, now that the collection is processed and there's a finding aid as of 2016, that, that translates into about 255 archival boxes. So it was a, a huge collection. And so as you're probably aware of, uh, being a graduate student and having a topic uh, is, is a good thing. But on top of that, having a project that uh, there is untapped archival material that nobody has actually used or looked at is a gold mine. And so uh, I began to have conversations with the archivist and she began to uh, she started a, an inventory list. So I have a sense of what was in the materials and we got the ball rolling and I was it was actually at a really good time also because I was finishing up, had another year in my master's degree program, and she let me look at some of the uh, speeches of John Wheeler. And I was kind of hinting at her, like, I'm going to get a PhD, pro uh, I'm going to a PhD program, and I might want to work on this project on John Herbert Wheeler, so please go ahead and process this collection. 
And so uh, I still had some, you know, coursework to do at UNC Chapel Hill. And so it gave me enough time to have continue to have conversations with her. So by the time I became ABD, we had already sort of set the stage for uh, me uh, doing research in, in the collection. Now, the interesting thing about it is uh, even though I began to have access to the collection, uh, they were still unprocessed, which meant they were not really in a position for research. So I couldn't request uh, photocopies. I couldn't take digital photos. I literally had to take notes on all the materials because they were not processed. Uh, even though they you know, had access to them, I couldn't do anything but take notes. And so uh, the other fascinating thing about this is uh, once I became ABD and I was going to go spend some time doing the bulk of my research in Atlanta, I basically volunteered to help the library um, do what they call fast-paced processing, taking in the materials from the original state and placing them into archival folders. And so I volunteered uh, my time. The library's archives didn't open up until 1 p.m. At about 9 or 10 a.m., I was in the archives helping to sort of fast-paced process materials. And so I was able to really establish a, a really good relationship with uh, the archives uh, down there and uh, really get the ball rolling on accessing this material. So now anybody who wants to go do, uh, uh, look into the Wheeler papers, research there, uh, is fully processed and there is an online finding aid. Uh, and so folks who are coming in after me have a better uh, have, have better access and won't have a, as, as difficult a time accessing the materials as I had. And your story also makes me think about another question that, you know, I hadn't thought about uh, yet, but talk to us a little bit more about the importance of archivists and building those kinds of relationships, especially for those of us, like you had mentioned before, right? I'm a graduate student. And so uh, speak to the graduate students and those, you know, uh, various listeners like my mom. Hey, mom, how you doing? Um, Who are listening, who want to... Uh, really learn about what it what it is that we do, and also the kinds of relationships that we really need to cultivate. Right. So archivists, and I already mentioned two archivists that that helped me out so so much uh, at the beginning of my uh, work. Archivists are uh, treasures, the national treasures in my book, um, and and so uh, they are the ones who um, are at the ready in um, bringing uh, research and materials to. Uh, any researcher, particularly graduate students, who are willing to uh, really be open to uh, untapped resources and untapped archival material. A lot of times uh, they, uh, you know, they keep a list of materials that um, nobody's using, but they're really rich materials. And so I just encourage graduate students to be open and to uh, do a little bit of uh, digging in terms of topics. Uh, don't so Don't be so quick to write off uh, a potential topic just because you have your 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 fixed on uh, working on one particular project. So always be open. Uh, also, um, the fortunate thing for me um, was um, before I even went into a PhD program at UNC, uh, I had the opportunity to, be, to start uh, to begin to understand a little bit more about uh, public history and archives. And uh, I spent the summer uh, working in the archives in Kentucky, the Filson Historical Society. Why I learned how to process uh, collections, write draft, write finding aids, and so I began to have really good understanding of what archivists do, and uh, what uh, is known and unknown about um, 
the the public persona, but also behind the scenes, and also uh, the extent to which uh, materials that are there are not always archivists don't always uh, have every detail about these materials. And so, um, and then when I went to UNC, I, I worked at the Southern Historical Collection, one of the uh, top uh, Southern archives in the country. And so, I have a different kind of appreciation for archivists, uh, and because I feel like those are some of the people who actually help train me. Uh, and so, uh, again, they are national treasures to me. So uh, be kind to your archivists. Uh, the, the work that they do is so important. Uh, and in particularly, um, the archives at historical black colleges and universities are some of the, 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 the most uh, untapped but rich resources uh, that we have as historians. Well, hey. I'm look. I don't know if y'all hear, but I'm writing down these tips from a doggone stuff because I'm about to go for this ABD status in about a year. Or so uh, thank you, Doc. I appreciate it. You know, oh, shame, no shame, sh- you know, you know, <laughs> shameless. You know, shameless as we all are here. Um, and so, you know, going a little bit further into some of the themes that you take up in your book. Um, and, you know, we had begun speaking about uh, Michael Jordan, Michael Jeffrey Jordan, that is, and. Uh, you know, this is a business history, among other things, right? Among other fields and subfields. What can, you know, not only business history, what can Black business histories tell us about the world Black Americans live in today? Right. Uh, so I think one of the one of the things that I try to capture in my work on John Wheeler and looking at the relationship between Black business people and uh, the civil rights movement, their emphasis and involvement in uh, the civil rights movement and thinking about sort of the goals and objectives of the civil rights movement is I really came away with a, a huge understanding of the relationship between uh, economics and uh, citizenship. And so um, business and its history really sort of helps inform uh, our understanding of, of that relationship between capitalism and, and citizenship, between uh, social, political and economic rights and, and um our lives uh, from an economic standpoint, right? And so uh, these are really good examples of uh, folks who uh, understood um, why uh, fighting for citizenship rights was so important. Uh, And um, it also sort of helps us think and understand that no matter what we're doing in our particular lives or in in terms of occupation, in terms of our uh, whatever pathways we take, our economic lives will be impacted on some level um, by our access to citizenship, by our access to uh, voting rights, our access to educational opportunities, our access to housing, um, our access to uh, voting and political uh, opportunities. And so uh, business uh, really sort of informs uh, our uh, citizenship rights in contemporary, right? These also uh, provide us with so many examples of, uh, just to give you an example, uh, by the turn of the 20th century, uh, just to use black banking, for example, there were more black banks um, in operation at the turn of the 20th century than there were at the turn of the 21st century. Uh, and so uh, business um, gives us a sense of uh, how to navigate um, ch- challenges that um, confront us, right? We think about sort of the late 19th, 20th century, these are folks who are confronted with Jim Crow segregation, all kinds of violence, uh, things of that nature. And so uh, while we don't have those kinds of constraints, uh, we do have obstacles to face. Um, but I think uh, 
you know, this history is really sort of instructive and informative in terms of how uh, it can help us navigate our current challenges uh, when it comes to uh, accessing things like capital, accessing uh, our economic rights uh, more generally, right? And so I really sort of uh, think about um, business history as really sort of informing uh, our citizenship, right? Understanding uh, the cl close connections between all of those uh, areas of a really sort of black economic life, if, if that makes sense. That makes sense for me and, I, and I'm sure also for the listeners. And, um, you know, one of the things I always love asking my uh, my, my guests here on New Books and AFAM um, is really about their writing process, right? The construction of the text and and how you how you kind of visualize, right? What was the mapping process like for you to construct a biography, right? Like, you know, what, tell us about that process for you. And also, right, especially because you've spoken before about its connection to your master's and your uh, uh, doctoral dissertation, right? Take us a little bit through the process, you know, of, of how, you know, this might have even changed, right, you know, as you've picked up kind of like what works for you and what doesn't. All right. So so I'll talk about two things. One is I'll talk about sort of the idea of writing a biography. And then I'll talk about sort of more or less the, the writing process in terms of writing uh, John Herbert Wheeler, Black Banking and Economic Struggle with Civil Rights. So uh, in writing a biography, and of course, I, I love, I grew up. I love biographies. Um, I, growing up, I, I read, you know, nonfiction and biographies on African-American pioneers, right? Uh, and so uh, I was interested in this genre of historical writing. Um, but I've also uh, also asked questions to folks who have written biographies. For example, I asked Barbara Ransby, who wrote a book on Ella Baker, about that process. And so I think um, in writing a biography, Early on, you really sort of have to make decisions about what your goals are going to be, right? What you're really interested in uh, doing in terms of taking that subject and informing your general audience about particular areas of history. And so uh, in writing biography, you, you really sort of have to make a decision early on about what your goals are. And I think you also have to think about the extent to which you want to uh, tell a story uh, that really sort of focuses on someone's uh, personal life versus their public life. And I think the challenge for biographers is how do you balance uh, the, the personal and the public? And that's real that's real struggle. And so I think you have to define those goals. Uh, I was interested in uh, the civil rights movement and interested in uh, thinking about the ways in which Black business people navigated or thinking about how they understood or were involved in the civil rights movement. And really sort of looking at someone like Wheeler and others as uh, as these sort of counter narratives to some of the more popular um, civil rights activists that we're so used to talking about. Uh, and so uh, I had particular goals in, in writing this and doing this this research and this work. And again, if 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 someone is interested in, in doing this kind of work, they really have to be uh, define what their goals are going to be. You know, I also did things like um, at the. Uh, annual conference of the Association for Study of African-American Life and History. I went to uh, those um, dissertation workshops that are held by uh, Dr. Bracey and Dr. Uh, Darlene Clark-Hine. Uh, and, you know, it was interesting because uh, one of those uh, workshops, I uh, told Dr. Bracey about what my research was about. And the one thing he said was, and it kind of 
uh, gave me a, it was one of those moments. He was like, you know, with biography, you can't do everything. And I was like, hmm, you, you can't tell this whole story about this person. And the, the, the advice was that you have to be very intentional about what your goals are going to be. Right. And also don't look at this as the end all be all uh, in terms of what you're going to say about your subject. Right. And so on the one hand, those are some of the things that uh, folks who are interested in doing this kind of work should be thinking about in terms of biography. Uh, and so uh, the other thing to think about when it comes to uh, biography is you also have to come to terms with this idea that you can't tell everything in one writing, uh, nor should you try to, in my uh, opinion. I think uh, even in this work with John Wheeler, I noted that there are 109 linear feet of, of archival materials. I just couldn't go through every every item, every uh, document on John Wheeler that was in his files. And so this is a very small percentage, I like to say, of what really is is can be what really can be revealed um, through looking and researching the life of John Wheeler uh, based on sort of his uh, the John Herbert Wheeler collection. So you have to be very intentional. You have to define your goals uh, in terms of writing the book itself. And, and feel free to chime in if you have some follow up questions with that. But in terms of writing the book itself, obviously, this was. Uh, or I shouldn't say obviously, but this was a dissertation. Uh, my book, I tr- transformed it into a transformed my dissertation into a book. I wrote a 500 page dissertation, and Lord uh, have it, mercy. Right. That, that that's my chime right. in. Lord have mercy. <laughs> right, and so um, the book again was tra- how to, the, the biggest sort of challenge in writing this book was, uh, you know, you get all this all this advice about. Um, the dissertation and, and the book are different, right? The, the, the book is is so transformative. It has to be something new and fresh. And so when I began to sort of think about transforming the dissertation into the book and thinking about how to make it new and fresh, I was so focused on the idea of new, starting in some ways start from scratch, even though I had this 500-page dissertation. Uh, and so because all the, the advice you get is that it has to be fresh, has to be new, otherwise the the presses, they won't be interested in your work. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time uh, rethinking uh, about the project, thinking about how to uh, connect John Wheeler and his story on a banker and the civil rights movement, uh, thinking about how it could become something larger in terms of how does it fit with, with this historiography over here, right? How does it inform the larger history of business? And so I, I spent a lot of time really thinking about those kinds of of questions and issues. And then um, one of the, the helpful things uh, that I got was, or came to understand was, uh, especially if you uh, if you look at the majority of the first books that are published, they are dissertations transform into books, right? And a lot of people will tell you, oh, my book is, is so much different from my dissertation. And it's, it is, but let's be clear. Uh, most of the first books are transformed into from a dissertation to the book. Now, what I came to understand about what people really mean by the book is something different, right? Um, a, a guy named William Germano, who, you know, he, he wrote a book called Dissertation from a Dissertation to Book, right? He wrote a book also about academic, he wrote books about academic publishing. And so one of the things that he, one of the metaphors that he uses is that the difference between the dissertation and the book is that 
uh, is basically the difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly. And I really sort of came to understand what that metaphor meant was that I don't have to create something completely new. Like, in other words, I don't have to start my book over again. I just have to take what I already have and rethink it, massage it, uh, figure out how to present it and articulate it uh, more concisely. Uh, And once I began to sort of think about along those lines, one of the things that was helpful for me in transforming the dissertation into the book was I began to pull up, go into ProQuest and pull up copies of people's dissertations whose books I had. And literally, I would take time side by side going through the introductions from the dissertation, introduction from the book, and really sort of thinking about, okay, what's different? It's, it was different. Uh, and what I really sort of came away with is that uh, the framework may still be the same. The chronology and things of that nature may still be the same. But uh, people had reorganized uh, book chapters. They had merged chapters. They wrote, rewrote their introductions. Uh, they rewrote the introductions to their chapters and conclusions of their chapters. And they made it better. Uh, and once I began to sort of understand that process and really uh, the key to really sort of uh, writing a book and, and writing in general is really sort of understanding the process. Uh, once I began to understand that, stand that the book, which had been so difficult really to write, even though I had this 500 page dissertation, it became so difficult to write because I thought it had to be something new, something from scratch. Uh, and once I began to sort of uh, understand uh, my framework, understand what my argument was, uh, and understand that it doesn't have to be something that I create from scratch again, right? I began to sort of understand um, where I needed to reorganize, how to rethink certain ideas, how to bring certain things into the forefront. And when I went back and looked at sort of uh, the final product in terms of my book, and my dissertation, I was blown away by how different these two pieces of writing were. Right. Uh, and so, again, uh, my my. Uh, encouragement and sort of the the advice I give is is you're not starting over, right? You're you're beginning a, a new sort of phase, but you're not throwing what you have away and trying to come up with something completely new. Uh, and so, uh, for me, writing um, one of the things that has helped me is to think more about writing as a process, understand the process as I like to look at it as as organized chaos. Um, understanding the process in terms of reading is writing, thinking is writing, uh, taking notes is actually writing. Uh, and so understanding uh, the process of writing from a holistic perspective, I think has really helped me think more about my writing and actually make it better. Right. And one of my favorite aspects of the writing process is the revision process. I never liked the revision process before. Um, but now um, I love the revision process because I saw and see what it does for my own writing. Right? I have a, a real time example of how my writing improved and got better as a result of trusting the process and understanding uh, how to revise and edit your own writing. Well, man, like as someone who's going through uh, the revision process right now with uh, his seminar paper, 
I appreciate that encouragement because, uh, you know, it'd it, it be hard out here, you know, <laughs> getting all that back. But but as you said, you know, that's the that's the portion when these things come uh, to, to really make the waves that you want it. So, uh, you know, encouragement to all of us, you know, as, as we're doing this. Right. Um, and so so, you know, talking about John Hervey Wheeler specifically, uh, right, because this is, you know, first half is pretty much it seems like a primer about, you know, the 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 scaffolding um, about the book. So 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 let's get into it a bit. Um, so so tell us. Right. Like, tell us about John Hervey Wheeler. Like what you know, what was his origin story? How did he come to be? How did he become such an important 20th century black banker? Right. So, so one of the biggest things to really understand about John Hervey Wheeler is, and and he often said this when he gave interviews, uh, when he talked about his uh, leadership, uh, he was basically born into the world of black business. You know, he came from, he was born in North Carolina, uh, grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, doing Jim Crow segregation. His father, John Leonidas Wheeler, was an executive with the uh, North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company, one of the largest black owned banks. Uh, in the country uh, during the early to mid 20th century. Uh, and so uh, John Wheeler had a, uh, an education in black business uh, from an early, uh, from early on. Uh, he grew up as part of the black middle class in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and uh, his family uh, came to, to Georgia in 1912. They had lived in Durham for a few years, came to, to Georgia in 1912. Uh, following uh, all of the challenges that uh, Black Georgians were facing in terms of of political disenfranchisement, uh, issues related to housing, so forth and so on. And so uh, he grows up in Jim Crow Atlanta, Georgia, although he's a a part of the Black middle class uh, and in many ways uh, started off life, even is sort of uh, how he liked to sort of discuss it. Uh, He comes of age in Jim Crow Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Ultimately, he goes to Morehouse College. He's at Morehouse when Dr. John Hope is the president, uh, one of his first uh, Morehouse College uh, professors or instructors was Dr. Benjamin e. Mays, who goes on to become the Morehouse College president. Uh, and so he's reared uh, in an understanding of black uh, business. Uh, I believe that uh, his understanding of citizenship and the relationship to economics was formed uh, by in many ways watching his father, watching his father's business associates. His mother and father had, had been uh, graduates of uh, Wilberforce. His mother, what, his mother and father were both educators. His father had been president of a small black college called uh, Kittrell College, uh, located in Vance County, North Carolina. Uh, one of the colleges colleges that was uh, controlled by the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, and so, uh, and though, and his mother and father, John Leonidas and Margaret Hervey. They were one generation removed from slavery. Their parents had been enslaved uh, and they used education as a pathway to uh, middle class respectability. Right. For lack of a better word. Uh, And so uh, this story is one of generations It's one uh, where John Wheeler uh, is uh, not that far removed from uh, his his family's you know, his grandparents being enslaved. Uh, and so uh, he is he benefits from all of the things that his parents had, had sort of worked for. Uh, at the same time, his parents, although they were involved in upbuilding uh, black institutions, the church, 
educational institutions, businesses and things of that nature, uh, they could only um, take their children. John Lice had a had an older uh, sister named Ruth Hervey, had a younger sister named Marjorie Janice. Uh, the parents offered uh, this sort of middle class respectability, um, but there's only so far that they could go uh, with that in terms of thinking about sort of the larger uh, challenges facing African-Americans in terms of citizenship. Uh, but the Wheelers as a family were better off um, when compared to the masses economically. And so that afforded, an, afforded him an opportunity to attend Morehouse College during the 1920s. He had attended uh, Morehouse Academy, which was the uh, secondary department at Morehouse College uh, during uh, just after World War I uh, with the college during the 1920s. So he's in college uh, at a particular moment uh, during the 1920s, right? We think of sort of this idea of the New Negro movement uh, and the ways in which uh, college students in general and black college students in particular are challenging some of the uh, institutions of higher education, right, to to gain a greater sense of independence and freedom for themselves. Uh, and then he comes, he graduates in 1929, and he takes a job with the Mechanics and Farmers Bank uh, that was also located in Durham, North Carolina. It was a sister institution to the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company. And so uh, he comes to Durham in 1929 uh, and becomes part of uh, this sort of uh, black business uh, dynamic, this legacy of black business. And in Durham, that legacy also not, not just included sort of economic uh, success in terms of, of the businesses, but it also included this close sort of connection uh, between business and the community, right? And so I like to look at this period in 1930s as John Wheeler sort of, is sort of a training ground for John Herbert Wheeler. Uh, he becomes involved uh you know, his career, but he's also coming more and more involved in community issues and community activism. Uh, and it's where there that he really gets his sort of training uh, in black business activism is sort of how I like to frame it. And so, so he say so he, when he uh, graduates from college, he comes into that environment and is trained uh, in uh, race relations, is trained in working with community and on particular issues, whether it's, it was economics, whether it was uh, educational um, inequalities and things of that nature. Uh, he that period was one of training for him, um, and so uh, by the 1940s he is uh, the cashier of the Mechanics and Farmers Bank, and in, in so many ways, you know, his rise um, through the ranks of the Mechanics and Farmers Bank it, it sort of parallels his rise as a, a community leader, right? And so. Um, so they sort of uh, happen in parallel fashion. Uh, so, that by, so, so much so that by 1940s, he is uh, a part of uh, what was then the Durham Committee on Negro Affairs, a civil rights organization in Durham. Uh, by 1943, he becomes head uh, or chairman of the Durham Committee's Education Committee. And that is the arm of the committee uh, that really sort of moves um, the fight for educational equality forward. Uh, it's ultimately the the arm of the organization that uh, becomes involved in uh, litigating school legalization cases. Uh, when we think about sort of this NAACP strategy during the 1940s, that ultimately culminates in 1954 with Brown v. Board of Education, right? So uh, again, to, to come back sort of your question, John Wheeler sort of emerges through the ranks of black business, right? He uh, is not 
uh, a part of the leadership necessarily in terms of the decision making when he comes out. Uh, but he learns, he's trained, uh, and in like the 1940s is really when uh, his activism really sort of begins to sort of take off. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it snowballs. It continues through the 1950s so that uh, by the 1960s, he is North Carolina's most influential black power broker and among the top civil rights figures in the South, not just in North Carolina, but in the South. Mm, and, and and I like how you said, you know, black power broker in the six in the nineteen sixties, right? I I I see that. I see that. Very very nice. Uh, but um, you know, and and I bring that up because um, you know, one of the most fascinating parts about your book, right? Especially like we 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 started in the opening, right? Talk about you know the 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 pop culture moment at, at which we're bringing you know in that that's birthing this this interview, right? So we see folks like, you know, Michael Jordan, Jay-Z and others, right, talking about like, you know, trying to and maybe so more so Jay-Z in this, but um, trying to use their their uh, use their money, right, use their influence in a way to 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 change things. Right. Um, Now, what that looks like for the Jay-Z part, we'll just leave that for another podcast. (laughs) Right. Right. But more so to to John Wheeler. Right. What. You utilize a term called New South Prosperity, right? right? That's peppered throughout your book. Can you talk to us about how did John uh, Hervey Wheeler apply this particular concept within his own brand of Black economic activism? Right. Really, really great question. So one of the things, even if you talk about sort of Jay-Z, you talk about Michael Jordan and and them being uh, these uh, economic, these entrepreneurs, but also uh, these heavy hitters when it comes to uh, owning businesses, um, the the one of the common themes, one of the the, the most significant themes that we see when we think of African American business, uh, is that these businesses have always had to have some kind of connection and responsibility, right, to the black community. Um, partly because African Americans are the, were the ones who uh, are patronizing, who are patronizing these businesses, uh, but that has always been a an, an aspect of owning black businesses and black business ownership, right? If you're looking at Jay-Z and Michael Jordan, in some ways, uh, even now, the, the black community um, has a certain expectation that is not always there for them in their positions, but that expectation uh, is, is in many ways always there. Um, this idea of New South prosperity, um, it actually was one of those aha moments for me in the writing process. And this goes back to the, to writing a dissertation. Um, I had begun to really sort of piece together John Wheeler's uh, activism and try to, trying to really sort of connect uh, his economic ideas to, to civil rights. Uh, but it wasn't until I uh, came across a ni- November 1945 article called A Negro Banker Speaks to the South uh, in the November issue, 1945 issue of the Tar Heel Banker, which was a publication of uh, the North Carolina Bankers Association. And in this article, uh, John Wheeler really articulates, this is moment after World War II, where John Wheeler really articulates articulates uh, the possibilities for the South. Right? And one of the things he focuses on is uh, the idea that African-Americans, the South had to uh, end segregation and it had to open up all aspects of 
the economy to African-Americans, right? It had to end Jim Crow segregation because it had uh, economic consequences. And so he really began to articulate uh, in that moment uh, why citizenship, why uh, civil rights were so important, right? Because African-Americans had to have simultaneously access to all their full citizenship rights uh, at one or simultaneously in order to have some kind of economic wherewithal. And Black economic power ultimately was about uh, this idea of New South prosperity. Citizenship, Black economic power would go far in helping the region, helping to South, the South to advance uh, in terms of material prosperity economically in uh, comparison to some of the other regions where we're talking about the West, Midwest, Northeast. And so for John Wheeler, um, articulating this idea of New South prosperity was, 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 was so important. And it really began to help me understand why, as a black business person, he is involved in civil rights. Because unlike um, some of the business people in the early part of the 20th century, who, um, whether we're talking about Booker T. Washington and others, who made the case that economic independence was a pathway to social, political, and economic uh, equality, John Wheeler is coming and saying that, no, as a matter of fact, uh, citizenship, civil rights, they're actually the pathway to economic independence and economic independence for African-Americans had so much uh, so much bearing on uh, the South more generally. Right. And so uh, my idea of New South prosperity is really sort of is framed around how John Wheeler really understood his role as a black businessman. Uh, and uh, the ways in which, as a as a businessman, he had to keep economic concerns at the forefront. And if we look at the civil rights movement and its goals and objectives, we have to come back to uh, the economic underpinnings of the civil rights movement. And so thinking about John Wheeler's and the way in which his life and his activism really informs of these larger issues, uh, it to me is a way to really sort of understand how the civil rights movement was as much about uh, economic rights as it was about, um, you know, uh, you know, getting to a point where uh, African-Americans had educational equality, where they had voting rights and political rights. And so uh, this really sort of uh, helped me really sort of understand uh, more broadly what the civil rights movement was about um, and, and, and the ways in which people like John Wheeler sort of envisioned uh, the future of, of the South, right? And they envisioned the future of the South being about New South prosperity. And they envisioned African-Americans as contributing, as, as being a full participating partner uh, in uh, the advancement of the South. And so uh, when I talk about New South prosperity, it's from uh, the framework of, uh, of how John Willis sort of articulated it. Uh, and every aspect of uh, the fight for for civil rights in terms of whether we're talking about education, whether we're talking about uh, jobs, whether we're talking about housing, all of those things had some bearing on one's, and still does, has some bearing on one's uh, economic life, right? Where one lived in terms of their housing depend, uh, had some bearing on their educational opportunities, their, their job opportunities, uh, where one uh what the extent to which one had an opportunity to uh, obtain certain levels of educational uh, opportunities, it had some bearing on their economic wherewithal. And so if you looked at it 
citizenship was central to economic independence, economic wherewithal. Uh, without citizenship rights, uh, one could not uh, ever hope to have any kind of economic uh, freedom, right, for lack of a better word. Mm. Mm. So speaking of freedom and freedom to do what you want, right, I think about another important 20th century North Carolinian in this time frame, and I think of Polly Murray. Right. Right. And so did Wheeler and Murray uh, come into contact and or work together? Because, you know, they're both very important um, civil rights and, and human rights figures in this way. All right. So so obviously, so Polly Murray, uh, as many of your audience members may know, uh, uh, grew up in Durham, her family, uh, her grandfather uh, and, and her uncle, uh, particularly her uncle, uh, Richard B. Fitzgerald, who was actually one of the co-founders of McCain's and Farmers Bank. Uh, and uh, so so her family uh, was very involved in terms of business early on in Durham uh, and had some responsibility for uh, the McCain's Farmers Bank. Uh, and, and so uh, during the height of, of Pauli Murray's activism, uh, really between the, the, the 1930s uh, all the way up until uh, her, her death, uh, she, um, she never worked alongside John Wheeler in terms of, of some of the, uh, his civil rights efforts in North Carolina in terms of him litigating uh, the school legalization fights and things of that nature. However, um, uh, you see these correspondences between John Wheeler and Pauli Murray, who she writes uh, to uh, to to wish him well and 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 to to thank him for leading the, the educational fight in Durham. You know, obviously she she had been one of those folks who was an activist that had challenged uh, ed, uh, discrimination at the University of North Carolina, uh, and so uh, you do have these correspondence between her and Wheeler, and I mean. Uh, she and Wheeler knew one another uh, frequently. Uh, Paulie Murray came to Durham, and you know when she uh, when she published uh, her writings, uh, Wheeler, who was a part of the li- local library in Durham, uh, they would invite uh, Paulie Murray to talk about her book. Uh, there are a number of photographs where Wheeler is actually uh, reviews her book. Uh, you know, while you know she comes to visit and gives a talk, but he he also reviews her book, uh, and so. Uh, those efforts uh, take place from that standpoint. They never work together per se, but obviously uh, both of their efforts related to civil rights uh, sort of do merge ultimately. Uh, and obviously Pauli Murray's uh, was, was, was a bit younger than John Hurry Wheeler. Uh, but in terms of, of them working together alongside one another, that not necessarily didn't necessarily happen, but um, Pauli Murray was definitely sort of on the radar. John Wheeler, they knew one another. Uh, they uh, corresponded with one another, uh, and and John Wheeler was was always supportive of her efforts uh, from from that standpoint, uh, particularly when it came to um, her efforts to uh, desegregate University of North Carolina. John Wheeler was on the boards of trustees of both Atlanta University and Morehouse College uh, between 1935 and 1978. So, uh, efforts for uh, so black education in terms of higher education was something that was really important to John Hervey Wheeler. Uh, and so he was very supportive of her efforts. Uh, although she ultimately isn't, doesn't uh, desegregate the University of North Carolina or integrate the University of North Carolina, 
John Wheeler uh, is one of the lawyers who uh, who represented the first uh, three black undergraduates who integrated at the University of North Carolina. Uh, that case um, goes all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and so uh, as in terms of them being uh, these civil rights lawyers, uh, they really sort of had that in common. Right. Uh, but also John Wheeler is operating as a businessman uh, in in some ways uh, in different uh, spheres or different spaces than uh, Paulie Murray would have been during this particular time. Uh, if that makes sense. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, and, and and it definitely does, and it helps us to better, you know, contextualize, um, you know, like I said, two important um, North Carolinians in in the right. in the twentieth century, right. um, and and how sometimes even though they may not come together necessarily to to work together, you know, they they very much knew each other enough to correspond um, like that too, and so. One of the most fascinating, one of the other more fascinating aspects of your book um, is, is your is your really investigation of recreational and leisure activities and their right. connection to uh, freedom of movement and uh, citizenship. So can you unpack that a little bit more about Wheeler's ideology on on citizenship and access to uh, to, to freedom of movement in uh, these leisure and recreational spaces as well? Right. So so one of the things I talk about in the book is uh, in in uh, alongside this idea of New South prosperity. And I, I guess I should say that uh, John Wheeler's ideas of freedom of movement were a part of his broader ideals when it came to sort of New South prosperity uh, and freedom of movement uh, basically uh, was about African-Americans have having equal access uh, to all areas of. Uh, democracy in, in American life, whether we're talking about politics, whether we're talking about education, uh, whether we're talking about housing and things of that nature, jobs. Uh, and Wheeler believed that one had to, in order to access the fullest extent of democracy and the fullest extent of citizenship guaranteed to them by the United States Constitution, they had to have the fullest extent and access to, to everything that American society had to offer. And uh, recreation and leisure was very much a part of that because uh, recreation and leisure was as much uh, as important, I should say, uh, in terms of a, a citizenship right um, for African-Americans as the right to vote, right, as the right to um, to, to uh, obtain an education. Right. And so uh, John Wheeler um really uh, emphasize recreation, right? He, uh, growing up in Atlanta, his father had uh, been one of the African-Americans to introduce tennis to African-Americans in Atlanta and to sort of popularize tennis for African-Americans. And so uh, early on, John Wheeler understood the relationship between citizenship and recreation. Uh, During the 1940s, John Wheeler serves on, was the first African-American in Durham to serve on the, the recreation committee. Uh, and to really begin to sort of uh, force uh, the uh, Durham communities to open up um, access uh, in terms of recreation to African-Americans. He believed that uh, having recreational opportunities was uh, as effective in in terms of citizenship as anything else. Uh, And part of his um, efforts to... uh, 
to bring about change was that African-Americans should have access to the local tennis courts. African-Americans should uh, have access to uh, golf courses and everything, anything sort of, uh, whether it's parks or things of that nature, the African-American taxpayers were supporting also with their, with their dollars. Uh, and so, uh, and, and also in American society, one's recreational access and leisure, uh, again, is, is one of the, the greatest representations of citizenship in terms of being American and American citizen, right? Um, it was the greatest sort of representation of that. Uh, and, and so that was very much a part of John Wheeler's uh, civil rights activism. Uh, he um, supported that through his financial support, right? He supported financially. He was a part of what was the American Tennis Association, the black counterpart uh, in terms of the professional tennis associations. Uh, he led funding drives he uh, for uh, tennis players such as uh, Arthur Ashe, Althea Gibson. Uh, there are a number of images in the book with uh, Wheeler and, and groups of other African-American uh, leaders with Althea Gibson. Uh, and so that was very much import- important to him uh, because uh, African-Americans had to have access to every aspect of American society. Right. And in order to be a complete citizen, one had to have uh, access to recreation, had access to leisure. Uh, and and if you go into the Wheeler uh, papers, uh, you'll see all kind of photographs with uh, John Wheeler and colleagues or friends. You know, they're going on fishing trips. You see him in his romper suit. Uh, in a lot of- <laughs> uh, and so that was very much important to him, right? Um, we, get, we sort of think of these leaders and folks who were working on these very serious issues as uh, not taking part in, uh, or we, we often don't see uh, civil rights leaders who are actually enjoying their lives, right? Because they're focused so much on the obstacles and challenges and overcoming those challenges. But Black folk uh, had good times, right? Black folks went on vacations. Black folks went on trips. Uh, Black folks uh, had had joy, right? And, and leisure and recreation was one of those ways in which way they sought to uh, access uh, that joy for themselves, right? And so, so, so that's a very... Um, a very important aspect of uh, John Wheeler's uh, his life, but also um, what he fought for when it came to African Americans. And I should note that uh, in many ways, John Wheeler, and he he frequently talked about this. He he really felt that for him, you know, and all the advantages that he had, in many ways, he could access in some ways the fullest extent of of his citizenship and what American democracy and all that meant. Uh, but he also, on another level, wanted every African American, right, across class, to be able to access some of the things that he felt like for himself. He had always been able to sort of access, right, in a lot of ways, right. Despite the challenges of Jim Crow segregation, he really felt that he was a part of the larger American society, right. In other words, he felt that he could do anything he he wanted to do, could go anywhere he wanted he wanted to, in so many ways, and he wanted other African Americans to really sort of experience uh, those kinds of freedoms, those kinds of of access to uh, everything that American society really sort of had to offer. And so with with that particular uh, synopsis of uh, Wheeler and his understanding of at least himself and his connection to uh, the American, you know, system and right American democracy in this way, um, 
with that said, then you know you talked about him in the in the '60s earlier, right? Is this you know preeminent uh, a black power broker? Well, later in the '60s, when actually the black power movement comes about, right? We you know we have uh, the student movement popping off in 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 North Carolina, right? Uh, but but later in the decade, right, Black Power comes about too. So can you right. discuss how he, you know, how did he think, right? How did you know his understanding of himself as an American, right? How did that co- uh, coalesce with, you know, uh, the 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 Black Power movement, which you know took over the nation afterwards? Right. Uh, well, one of the things that I try to get across in the book is that when I talk about this idea of freedom of movement, uh, New South prosperity. Uh, in, in many ways, it's, it's about John Wheeler uh, promoting and making an argument that uh, American society had to uh, become an integrated society. Uh, part for him, part of what that meant was uh, it wasn't just that um, African Americans and African American institutions and, 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 and white institutions had to come together. And, you know, for him, integration had to be worked out in a particular way. Right. And so uh, if, you know, if just for example, um, there was a black hospital in Durham and there's a white hospital. When the conversations came uh, up about those two institutions merging, uh, the black hospital, uh, its director had graduated from Harvard, right? So when those institutions came together, who was going to be the person uh, who was going to be the director over the emerged hospital? Was it going to be this black Harvard graduate, right? So, so, so in terms of Wheeler's sort of framework, he... Um, was very much an integrationist, uh, but integration had to be worked out in particular ways. Now, when uh, black power really sort of emerges, and let me, I should also say that uh, John Wheeler's sort of understanding of the phases of civil rights, if you, if you want to put it like that, uh, were three distinctive phases. Uh, the legal phase, when you think about sort of the NAACP strategies, the direct action phase, when you think about sort of removing those physical barriers uh, and uh, African-Americans having, having greater access from that standpoint. The third phase was what he called sort of the implementation phase. And in many ways, the implementation phase was about how are you going to implement things like the Civil Rights Act of 1964? How are you going to implement the Voting Rights Act of 1965? And how is that going to play out? Uh, when uh, Black power really sort of emerges, and, and I'm particularly talking about the, uh, the phrase Black power, uh, John Wheeler... Uh, felt that the articulation of black power and everything that it it meant, um, he believed that people in his position um, had always sort of been making a case for black power, right? When you talk about sort of black economic power in that sense. Now, uh, Wheeler was very critical of uh, black power in the sense that he believed and felt like uh, the, the articulation and the term black power uh, it, in the rhetoric uh, surrounding black power, he felt like it was divisive. He felt like it was a, a way for uh, whites who resisted uh, integration, who resisted uh, the civil rights movement, the gains won by the civil rights movement. He saw it as a way for them to hijack uh, all those gains that gains that had been made, and he felt like it was counterproductive. In other words, he agreed with the, the ideas that. Um, the uh, frustrations of of the Black Power movement in terms of of accessing American society and, and all those kinds of things, he agreed with it, right? In terms of he understood the frustrations, he understood, right, uh, the underlying 
underlying conditions uh, that that the Black Power movement really sort of comes from. He understood that and agreed with uh, the principles in terms of uh, how how it was articulated. But he didn't agree necessarily with the Black Power slogan. He was very critical of the Black Power slogan, and so uh, he was critical in that from that standpoint. Uh, but he also was was uh, on the same token critical to um, critical of white America who uh, had let things fester and had let these underlying issues sort of uh, unleashed, right. Um, With things like sort of urban, the urban crisis and things of that nature. And so uh, he was critical of of black power as, as rhetoric, uh, but very supportive and agreed with uh, the principles and everything that was articulated in terms of, uh, black economic power in terms of uh, the ways in which African-Americans had to uh, embrace uh, self-determination. Uh, and so uh, during the mid to late 1960s, John Wheeler, uh, in, in in many instances, worked with uh, black power activists, right? Uh, whether it was through the Durham Committee, whether it was through other uh, organizations that were being established. He was also... Um, on the board of the North Carolina Fund and a anti-poverty agency in North Carolina, uh, and so uh, and, and that organization was um, in many ways uh, in line in, in so many ways with uh, weeding out uh, poverty, but also sort of providing African Americans with a greater sense of, of political um, willpower, if you will. And so uh, he worked on issues that. Uh, black power activists felt were important uh, in working with the organizations that he was a part of uh, during uh, the late 1960s. Right, he works um, one of the uh, prominent um, black power activists in North Carolina during this particular time is a guy by the name of Howard Fuller, uh, who uh, goes on to uh, found uh, Malcolm X uh, University in Durham. Uh, he works alongside Howard Fuller. Uh, in, in many instances on many issues. Uh, and if you interviewed Howard Fuller today, he would talk a little bit about that. And so John Wheeler, while his uh, stance was very much in line with this integrationist framework, uh, he understood and said as much about um, the, um, the reality um, that African-Americans and black power activists uh, had been sort of talking about and facing during this particular time. And so uh, while he wasn't. Um, he didn't embrace the idea of black power himself. Uh, the underlying ideals of black power, he was very much uh, in support of, uh, and very much uh, understood. Uh, he just uh, disagreed, uh, kind of, with uh, the articulation of black power and the ways in which uh, it was, I guess, acted upon uh, in the mid to late nineteen sixties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, and another thing is that uh, oh. John Wheeler. Um, he was also, in some ways, this is a criticism, he was beholden to uh, organizations, to institutions, uh, and and really sort of came at civil rights from that particular standpoint. Mm, mm. Well, the, the other the other part, right, as, as we're uh, closing up shop here, um, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about the present day, right? You, you, you spoke about um, you know, you alluded to a little bit of how uh, uh, Wheeler is perceived today. So, you know, what 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 is the perception of 
you know, what was really the perception of John Hervey Wheeler today in in Black Durham in the 21st century? All right. Uh, so I would venture to say that the majority of, of folks living in Durham uh, and the Triangle area don't don't know that much about John Hervey Wheeler. Uh, more recently, and so from that standpoint, uh, he was one of those historical figures who, that during his heyday, uh, his contemporaries, uh, both in North Carolina and around the country, whether it's politically, economically, or from an educational standpoint, would have known uh, who John Herbert Wheeler was, right? Uh, but not many people in Durham, aside from those who are old enough to, to sort of see him in action and, and things of that nature, really know about John Herbert Wheeler. Uh, they may know about the Mechanics of Farmers Bank. They, they may know about the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company and uh, many of the institutions that he was a part of. But uh, because of his approach to civil rights leadership, uh, he's really sort of gone under the radar uh, it was more recently, in October 2019, that uh, Congressman G.K. Butterfield uh, pushed forward a bill in Congress to rename uh, the federal courthouse in Durham uh, the John Herbert Wheeler United States Courthouse. Uh, and uh, and we haven't really talked about much about that much about John Wheeler being this civil rights leader. So he was or civil rights lawyer, the banker and civil rights lawyer. And so uh, the fact that that building is now named in his honor uh, is one of the ways in which uh, I think his legacy uh, and and people remembering who he was and asking questions, I, I think that's one of the ways in which people will uh, sort of come back and start to think more about uh, John Herbert Wheeler and who he was and his significance. Uh, and I think um, his name being on a federal uh, courthouse is uh, really sort of symbolic of his lasting legacy. Um, he uh, believed and fought for civil rights through the legal realm, uh, connected um, that to uh, an embrace of uh, uh, fighting for citizenship and civil rights, uh, and uh, connected that to his understanding of, of business and, and economic uh, power for African-Americans. And so uh People don't know who he is, but uh, I think there is a way in which his legacy is beginning to uh, get or gain some memorialization. And, you know, hopefully with uh, my book on John Herbert Wheeler, people will begin to sort of uh, begin to sort of not only understand and think about John Wheeler's legacy and who he was, uh, but they will take a step back and begin to sort of interrogate and think a little bit more about uh, the uh, significance of a uh, black Durham, um, black Wall Street, or Durham's black Wall Street, I should say, uh, and the ways in which uh, that uh, city as a black financial center uh, was extremely important in terms of moving uh, African American struggle for civil rights uh, and citizenship forward. And so, uh, so those are little, some of the ways in which I think um, we sort of understand his legacy. Uh, not a lot of people knew about him, uh, but um, that was because uh, he worked sort of behind the scenes, behind closed doors, uh, and uh, was a, a diplomat in a lot of ways. Uh, and uh, because of that, um, you know, he escapes 
our memory of the civil rights movement, particularly when it comes to North Carolina. When we think about the civil rights movement in North Carolina, we think about the uh, sit-in movements. Uh, we tend not to think about uh, some of the ways that civil rights activists were, uh, even decades before the sit-in movement, were sort of setting the groundwork uh, for uh, student activists uh, during the 1960s. Mm, mm. And and that's fascinating because that really uh, helps connect to one of my final questions, which is, as a Black business historian, right, what does... What does the field of Black business history mean to you? And also, you know, what does, you know, the legacy of John Hervey Wheeler tell us, you know, about what the, not only what the importance is, but like looking forward, right? Like what, what does all of this mean for us today as far as, you know, Black business and Black, you know, civil rights activism? Right. And so, uh, Man, that's a really, really, really great question. Uh, in terms of, so, so let me just say this. When I started on this project on John Irving Wheeler, um, I was interested in civil rights, but I didn't want to do a civil rights history because in my naivete, I felt like civil rights had already been done. Wow, go go figure that one out. Uh, and so I wasn't planning on doing a civil rights history, and I definitely wasn't planning on doing any history uh, on and really wasn't that interested in black business history, but uh, as a result of me doing this work on John Evan Wheeler, I had to um, figure out a way to begin begin to sort of understand black business history, uh, and I was really intimidated uh, in many ways about working on black uh, business history. Uh, but now I'm working on a really ambitious book on the history of black banking, and I see all kinds of of ways in which black business history. Um, black banking history is going to take off, right? There's so many people working on uh, African-American business history and looking at banking and things of that nature. Uh, and so uh, the field itself is 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 growing. Um, it's taking off. Uh, and so, uh, again, my work and, and what I sort of bring to to this work is really sort of diving in head first. Now I'm, I'm, I'm all in uh, when it comes to uh, this kind of history. I think ultimately... Um, when we think about sort of John Wheeler's legacy and the impact and significance of Black business history, uh, it really uh, informs uh, our understanding of uh, Black economic life, right? And it really sort of, in, in no other moment than even this moment right now, uh, we really come to understand that uh, our economic lives are really central to how we navigate all other aspects of American society. And in order for us to sort of understand how to navigate our way through uh, this particular moment and the challenges that we currently face, we have to have some understanding uh, of uh, what some of uh, the folks who came before us, um, how we have to have some understanding of how they navigated uh, those particular challenges. And in many ways, uh, their challenges were. I don't want to say far greater is not the better word, but that's the word I'm going to use. Uh, were far greater, uh, yet they found uh, a way to uh, be innovative, to embrace uh, other and alternative ways of uh, being successful economically, 
And I think we have uh, that will within our arsenal to be able to do. All right. And so uh, I think we, we need to sort of take those lessons and understand how to navigate um, our contemporary challenges using the, those um, this, using business history as an example. Uh, and also, I think um, more so now than than ever before, uh, we have to be serious about the ways in which uh, those of us who, uh, I'm going to say those of us, but folks who are uh, entrepreneurs, those who we look to uh, and see and point out as the wealthy among us, we have to continue to be critical. We have to continue to expect them uh, to uh, respond to our contemporary challenges and the issues uh, in a way uh, that is not necessarily in the interest of uh, their own financial goals, but in the interest of our well-being. And, and uh, you know, when you think about sort of entrepreneurs and people who are interested in business, you have to have some uh, real understanding of uh, how economics uh, impacts society, uh, but you also have to have some grounding ideologically in terms of uh, understanding uh, the role and responsibility that you have uh, to society. Right? And so I think uh, from that standpoint, uh, business history is able to sort of inform from that particular perspective. Uh, and um, I think, um, you know, this history on John Herbert Wheeler is one way to really sort of uh, help us in moving through uh, the 21st century. Again, you know, by the turn of the 20th century, there were, uh, we, we had more black businesses at the turn of the 20th, 20th century than we did at the turn of the 21st century. I think our challenge has always been access to capital. Uh, and so we have to understand and become uh, knowledgeable about the ways to access capital uh, and understanding that we might have to take an, an alternative pathway uh, to accessing capital, to accessing all of those things that are going to make us economically successful in this uh, contemporary moment. Mm. Mm. And well, folks, it has been a pleasure and an honor to have uh, someone who I call a friend. This this brother right here, y'all, he is an amazing person. And you know the wild part is we ain't never even formally shook hands before, but that's that's that that's that's fam. That's 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 HBCU life. That's that's this uh, black academic life, as we as right. we call it. Um, and and for, and for y'all who have gotten to to this far, for, first of all, thank you so much for for listening. This is an amazing interview, I'm sure. Um, and and as y'all probably already know, I am speaking with Dr. Brandon K. Winford, assistant professor of history at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, and. Dr. Winford has been on the podcast to discuss his new book published by our friends at the University Press of Kentucky, John Hervey Wheeler, Black Banking and the Economic Struggle for Civil Rights. And well, Dr. Winford, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We cannot wait to have you on again. Thank you so much for having me anytime.
Good. And don't worry, we're going to hold you to that. Don't worry. We, we got this on <laughs> film. <laughs> and so uh, once again, folks, my name is Adam McNeil, host of New Books and African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. If you like this podcast episode, please, please, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please subscribe to the channel as well. We love to know how we are doing. We love to know how we are doing. And so until next time, folks, from New Books in African-American Studies, I am your host, Adam McNeil. Over and out.